for your glory. Amen. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. This morning, uh, I am beginning a short four-part sermon series. I've done this most Septembers. I didn't do it last year, but we often take a number of weeks to focus on our mission as a church and uh, the vision that God has given us. Our mission is making Jesus known. And, and that's not unique to Sunrise. That's how we've expressed it. But that's God's mission for His people, that we would live in such a way that we would make Jesus known. And so we're going to focus there. We're going to start there. And then over the coming three weeks, we will unpack what does it look like for us to, to, to live that mission out? What's the vision? What will it look like? And it will look like uh, women and men growing deeper in, uh, in our relationship with Christ Uh, closer in relationships with one another as the people of God and bolder on mission for the lost. And and all of that is grounded in the gospel. It's grounded in, rooted in, anchored in what Christ has done for us on the cross, His uh, redemptive work. And it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we will unpack those things over the coming weeks. This morning, we're going to start by looking at the mission that God has given us, the mission of making Jesus known. I had the privilege of being hired at a a small church in Abbotsford when I was in my third year, just beginning my third year of studies uh, at Columbia Bible College. I had spent a summer after high school uh, working at a summer camp, part of a summer, and I I had loved that time. Uh, Many of you know that I went through, while I was in high school, my parents split up. There was a ton of pain, and, and so going to a camp and being able to invest in the lives of other teens, other students who were going through hard things, just, I just had to sense this is what I want to do. And so I went to CBC to prepare for, uh, for youth ministry, and in my third year I was hired, I could quit my job at Petra Turbo tump, Pumping Gas, and I got hired at a church to start a junior youth ministry. It was a small church. They'd never had a youth group for junior high students, and so I was hired part-time, and I started doing that. And when I finished my studies in fourth year, they hired me as the church's first youth pastor, and I had the privilege of serving there for a total of almost six years, just pouring my life into the lives of students, loving them, caring for them, walking with them through some hard things, and teaching them about Jesus, pointing them to Jesus, challenging them, urging them to, to love Jesus and live for Jesus. Well, in the late winter of, of 1998, I felt God leading me, Christine and I were married already at the time, to uh, return to school to pursue graduate studies. And so I resigned at the church and my time there was winding down. I remember it was April of 1998, my last Friday night with these students. Sorry, I didn't think I'd get choked up about this. It was my last chance to speak to them. My, my final words to them. And so I remember that last Friday night, I brought them, all junior and senior high students, and we went to a cemetery. And I had us sit down among the gravestones. And I challenged them to be there, to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That, that the one thing that mattered most was that they would love Jesus that they would follow Jesus, that they would give themselves fully and unreservedly to Jesus. Be there. My final words to those students. 
This morning, we are looking at Jesus' final words to his disciples. His life and ministry uh, on earth, he's gone to the cross, and he is going to ascend to heaven, and he gathers his disciples for uh, this last time to give marching orders, if you will, to, to speak his final words, uh, the, the thing that he wants to leave them with. He has been executed by Rome on a cross. His lifeless body has been laid in a, in a tomb. God has raised him. Jesus, the, the gospel tells us that on Sunday morning, despite the, the Roman guards that had been stationed at this tomb to ensure the disciples didn't steal his body, that, that two women, two Marys, were on their way there when there's this violent earthquake and they encounter an angel. And, and the angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said, come see the place where he lay. And then here, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee there you will see him. And so these Mary and Mary run off. And as they run off, and I love this description, afraid and full of joy, just this marvelous mixture of emotions, terrified on the one hand, because they've just had this experience and yet excited. They, they run off and then they encounter Jesus and they fall down before him. They grab his feet. They worship him. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. That, that's what has transpired immediately before these verses. We're going to pick up uh, things at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Matthew's telling of Jesus' final words, Jesus speaks these words. He will no longer be physically present with his disciples. They have been with him for three years. They've lived with him. They've followed him. And he is about to leave. And so he's telling them what they are to be about. What they are to focus on. He's telling them why they're being left behind. I mean, he could have just taken them with him. In fact, every time a person comes to faith in Christ, God could just beam us up. Right? Right? Good, saved, boom, gone. But no, he, he's saying, this is why I'm leaving you behind. This is what you are to be about. This is your mission. He commissions them. He commissions us, all who are his disciples, with these words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I want to, as we dig into these words that no doubt are very familiar probably to most of us, I want us to dig into them and think carefully about them, about the implications of them. What does this mean? It's easy to just hear things that we've heard a million times and, and not think deeply. We want to dig into them and think deeply and carefully this morning. And to that end, I want to ask three questions. We're going to spend most of our time on question two, but all three questions are very important. Question one, where did Jesus meet his disciples? 
Question two, what did Jesus say to them? What did he command them to, to do? And third, how did Jesus reassure them, encourage them? So where did he meet them? What did he tell them to do? And how did he encourage or reassure them? Question one, where did Jesus meet his disciples? This is not insignificant. It's, it's not insignificant where Jesus meets his disciples. Uh, when the, the women encountered the, the angel at the tomb, the angel said, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee to meet Jesus. There they'll see him. When the women meet Jesus, Jesus says to them, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The events at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the events of Holy Week, have happened in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem uh, the week ahead of Passover. Uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He went to the temple in Jerusalem, and there he flipped over tables of the money changers and those selling sacrificial animals. Jesus spent the week teaching crowds in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover meal, the Last Supper, in the upper room of a home in Jerusalem. Jesus led his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane that was in Jerusalem to pray on the night he was betrayed. Jesus was tried, arrested, and tried and convicted in Jerusalem. And he was crucified. He was put to death just outside the city walls. All of these events happened in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of of the religious life for God's people. It was the place of the temple. It was the city of God. The temple was understood uniquely to be the place of God's presence. All of these things have been happening in Jerusalem until here. Jesus' final words are going to happen in Galilee. The angel says, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus says to the women, tell my brothers I will see them in Galilee. The, the location is significant. Jerusalem is the religious center of Israel. It is the center of the nation of God's people. Galilee, Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the nations. In a moment, we're going to look at Jesus' word, his command to his disciples, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Jesus sends, says that he will meet his disciples in Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. Jesus came as a fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Jesus came as a fulfillment of Jewish messianic expectations. But Jesus did not come only for the Jewish people, only for those who were ethnically Israelites. He came for all nations. That's evident already back in Genesis chapter 12 where God says to Abram, and I will make you a blessing to all nations. God's vision of salvation has always been all nations, never just Israel. And so it is so fitting that Jesus says, go tell my brothers, tell the disciples to go to Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. That's where I'm going to meet them. That's where I'm going to give them their marching orders. That's where I'm going to share with them their mission. If Jesus were to come to us today to address the church, to address us at sunrise with this commissioning, when you think with me, Jesus would, would almost certainly not say, hey, I'll meet you at 3303 37th Street on Sunday morning. No, he would say, we're going to meet at Horlack Park on an August long weekend in the middle of a Heritage Festival. 
Because I want you to see the nations. I want you to see the mission field. I want you to see people who need me. Jesus says, tell the disciples that I will see them in Galilee. Second question, what did Jesus say to his disciples? What did he command them? What was it that he commissioned them to? Perhaps some of you are grammar nerds. The, the, the main clause of this word from Jesus is uh, make disciples. If you were to do a sentence diagram, students, do you do sentence diagrams in L.A.? I know that in L.A., my son at least, I, I, I'm shocked when they actually make him read a book, so I don't know that you're doing sentence diagrams. Usually they just watch the movie, and I'm like, what? This is English. Read a book. If you're a grammar nerd, you might know the, the main clause of this sentence, it, it, of what Jesus says is, make disciples. That's the main verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. Make disciples. And then there are a number of other verbs, they're participles, they're, and they modify that main clause. So the main thing is make disciples, followed by a number of modifying clauses pointing to that. Jesus commands his disciples, he commands you and I as followers of Christ, he commands us to make disciples by, this is how we do it, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That's the grammar of what Jesus says. Make disciples going, baptizing, and teaching. We're going to look at each of those uh, separately in a moment, but let me just say a couple things about uh, making disciples. Jesus does not say make converts. Jesus does not say make believers. He doesn't say make people who give mental assent to a set of doctrinal truths. Propositional truth claims. He says, make a disciple. We need to make disciples. We need to take that to heart. And if we've been thinking incorrectly, maybe the Spirit of God wants to convict us and, and reshape our thinking, correct it. Jesus says, make disciples. What is a disciple? A, a disciple is a helpful way to think about this. A disciple is an apprentice. It is someone who is with the master, who is learning from the master, not just information, but, but hands-on doing it. Their, their life is being shaped by the one that they are being trained by. It, it's not merely a matter of information download. It's about doing and being. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to the first of the mod three modifying phrases here. Jesus begins by saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. Therefore go. The first step in making disciples is going. That, that is, the first step is leaving where you are and heading to a different place. Leaving where you are and going to people who don't yet know Jesus. To those who are not yet disciples, those who need Christ. Christian community is vital. We're called into community. We, we are made into family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need one another. We need to be encouraged and supported and, 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 and challenged. We need community. Community is, is what we're called to. And we will see that in a couple of weeks when we look at what it means to grow closer in relationships with one another. We need Christian community. But we also need to understand the nature of going. 
as Christians, we face the constant temptation to focus so heavily on our relationships with one another that we never go. Going is risky. Going will cost you, but it's more comfortable to stay. It's more comfortable to stay at home. It's more comfortable to hang out with people who think like we do. But Jesus says, go. This is, this is the mission. This is why he's left us behind. This is why we're here. We gather together to be strengthened. We gather together to encourage one another, to, to pray together, to lift our voices in worship and, and see, be reminded of the gloriousness of who God is. And we, we gather to hear, to sit under the ministry of the word. And, and then we go. We scatter. We scatter across this city. We scatter to different schools, to different workplaces, to different neighborhoods. We scatter to different grocery stores and gas stations and God's people. We, we gather and then we scatter. We go. And not only here, we, we go overseas. We go around the world. We, we go where God sends us. This is such a vital rhythm for us to understand. It's like breathing. We gather and we scatter. We gather and we go. It's important for us to notice here the scope of the call. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There's, there's no limit. There's nowhere to which God has not called his people. Wherever there are people who do not know Jesus, to those places we are called as God's people. Whether that's foreign lands or places in your own neighborhood where you've not gone, where I've not gone. Jesus calls us to go everywhere, wherever there are lost people. It is so critical for us to recognize this, that, that gathering is, is natural. Gathering is, is easy. Going, on the other hand, is challenging. Going will cost us. Going will mean discomfort. Going will mean goodbyes. Over my years as a pastor, I've heard stories, young people sometimes, where, where God just captures their heart and they, they sense this call to go on missions, sometimes to go far away. And I've seen parents discourage them. Because they don't want their kids to go. They, they don't want them far away. They, they want them here. They want them to have good jobs and a good home and, and live the American dream. And so they said, don't go. We don't want you to go. The cost is too great. We want you safe. We want you here. And whenever that happens, that is a great tragedy. God calls us to go. God calls us to go wherever there are people who do not know Jesus, whether that is near or whether that is far away. When I was in India, not quite two years ago, I, I've shared this experience. In one city we went to, we went out into the slums. I'd never seen such poverty. And, and encountered this couple who were there with their young son, living in the midst of incredible poverty for the sake of the lost, teaching students. I, I was so profoundly blessed and challenged. They have counted the costs and they have gone. 
parents, grandparents, children, are, are, are we prepared to say goodbye to loved ones? Are we prepared to say, go with God? To go far away? Are we ready to be cheering them on, or will we seek to discourage obedience to this? Fifteen years ago, I had the chance to go to North Africa to a closed Muslim country, and part of my time I spent with a family. I think they had five or six children, all relatively young at the time, but 15 years have passed. All their children are now grown. They're all adults, and all their children have, have gone elsewhere to North America or to Europe to study. Some of their children are married and have had their own children, grandchildren, and yet I just read a report from this couple who have gone back after a visit here alone as a husband and wife to the city where God has called them among Muslim people who do not know Jesus to live out their days, to serve. They, they've gone. And there's a cost, but it's a cost they happily pay for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we, we are all called to go. We're all called to go. For some, it, it may mean going overseas, but for all of us, there will be a cost. And there will be things that are uncomfortable, whether it's overseas or across the street. We are all called to go. We're all called to sacrifice. We're all called to let go of those comforts and those things that are easy to go to those who do not know Christ. It's interesting, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, that Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his followers, that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That's, that's his words to them, the beginning of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Only then they all stay in Jerusalem for seven chapters. It's not until Stephen is killed, when he's stoned to death, at the beginning of chapter 8, then it says, then they scattered. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now the text doesn't explicitly say that that, that was God's design, but God had called them. Jesus had said, you'll be my witnesses everywhere, and they, they just hung out in a holy huddle. And then through suffering, God moved the church out to go. Whether across the globe or across the street, every one of us as a disciple of Jesus is called to go, to cross boundaries, national boundaries, property boundaries, cultural boundaries, going to people who are different than us, going from pe to people who don't know Jesus, who think differently than us. We're all called to go. This is to be our impulse, to go. Second step in making disciples is baptizing. Verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptisms are exciting. I love celebrating baptisms. It's always a great privilege and joy for us as a church to celebrate a baptism. When uh, people put their faith in Jesus, they're baptized, we, we immerse them in the water, symbolizing their death to sin and their old life, and we raise them up out of water, symbol of resurrection and new life in Christ. It's a great time of celebration. We enjoy those, and, and that's a good thing. But I think often we think incorrectly, we think inaccurately about baptism. Baptisms are exciting. Baptisms are something to celebrate, but too often we think of baptism as the goal, as the end. 
Uh, you all know that I've committed myself to running 10K in a couple weeks, and Doug and Nancy will host uh, a gathering in their backyard. That will be where my 10K are supposed to end. That's the plan. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're all gathered there, and I haven't nailed the, the, down the time, but let's say that the goal is 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock or, or thereabouts, I will roll in the end of my 10K run. What, you gather there, ready to celebrate this accomplishment, and, and right around 3, I show up in my car, <laughs> dressed to run. I have my runners on and my sweatband, and I'll be ready to go. And, and you go, like, what's the deal? And I said, well, I decided instead I'd, I'd start here. And some of you, a little frustrated, were like, okay, so, so we got to wait here for, like, how long is this going to take? And I'm like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Just say, and everyone comes in the front yard, and I say, ready? And, and I start running about three houses away. I stop, and I turn around, and I go, yeah! And you go, you don't understand the nature of a 10K run, Dennis. But I started! Like, no, the, the goal is to run, the, the, the start, this is just the start. See, baptism is a great thing to celebrate, but baptism is a beginning. Baptism is not the goal. It's not the, the thing that we aim for. It is an initiation into a life with Christ. It is an initiation into following Jesus as a disciple. Yes, let's celebrate when people repent and believe, but that's not the end goal. That's not the finish line. Seeing someone come to faith. No, we want to see people come to faith. We want to see people get baptized. We want to celebrate that with them. And then we want to cheer them on as they run the race. As they follow as disciples. Jesus says, go and baptize. Initiate people into a life of faith. Initiate people into a life of following Christ as a disciple. A third step. And making disciples is found in verse 20 where we read this, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Remember, these are Jesus' final words to his disciples. He wants to emphasize what is really critical for them to hear, for them to know. And here he says that making disciples requires that they go, that they baptize, that they initiate people into a life of faith, and then Teach them to obey everything I have commanded them. Do you, do you see the significance of that? Teaching is to lead to life transformation. It's not merely about information transfer. Something that I, I think we in North America are in danger of assuming sometimes. That, that we, we just need to fill our brains. We need to understand the truth. And certainly we do, but... But it's never simply just about information transfer. Do you remember? I don't know if you still do this. I should have talked to my son more about this, maybe. But when I was in high school a gazillion years ago, when exam time came, all the desks in the school would be moved to the gym, set up four or five feet away from everyone else. And on exam days, you would go in there and you'd be surrounded by students not in your class, not in your grade to help you not cheat. And you'd sit there and you'd have two or three hours to regurgitate a bunch of information that they hoped they had downloaded to you. That's, that's not how Christianity goes. That's, that's not discipleship. I mean, someday when we die and we go to heaven, God's not going to go, okay, here's a, a, a table, a, a desk, and a, and a test. Just, I want to know what you know. Did, you, did you, you know, read your Bible enough? Do you got all this information down? Do you got enough? That's not 
how this works. We're called to life transformation, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Obedience to Christ matters. Our lives are to be changed. The lives of those we proclaim Christ to are to be changed, transformed. The, the gospel is good news that through faith in Christ we are forgiven, that through faith in Christ we are declared righteous, holy, pure, that through faith in what Christ has done, we, we, are, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are, we're dead, we're made alive. All of that happens freely by the grace of Christ through what God in Christ has done. And, and then our lives are transformed in response to what he's done in light of the gloriousness and the goodness of Jesus. Empowered by his Holy Spirit working in us, our lives are changed. We, we won't obey perfectly. This isn't about sinless perfection, but life transformation. We are growing. We are being conformed daily into the image of Christ. And none of that is, is done by our own striving, pulling ourselves up by our socks. No, our whole vision is, is about being grounded in the gospel, grounded in what Christ did, grounded in His free grace, abundantly, lavishly poured out on us, and empowered by His Spirit. The Christian life is not a life that you or I can live by our own strength, by our own striving. It is a life empowered by His Spirit, the Spirit of the living God who indwells us, empowers us into this new life, a life as a disciple, growing in obedience, being transformed day by day. The mission that Christ calls his disciples to, the mission that he calls us to, is that we would, we would go, that we would baptize, initiating people in a life of faith, teaching them to obey, that, that lives would be changed. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says these sobering words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, neither of those texts are, are there to inject a whole bunch of insecurity into our lives, but to guard us against being deceived. To guard us from a false view of grace that says, we can ignore obedience that, yeah, we want forgiveness and now we can just do whatever we want. Paul confronts that in Romans 6. If, if the more I sin, the more grace abounds, and should we just go on sinning? He says, of course not! Completely incompatible with what it means. It's completely inconsistent with who you are. You have been redeemed, you've been washed, you've been adopted. You're not in the kingdom of darkness anymore. You're in the kingdom of light. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. So the Christian life is learning to live out the reality of who we are, what is true about us. So we grow in obedience, not in order to be loved, but because we're loved. Because God has poured His grace abundantly into our lives, our lives are changed. We're so enraptured with God's love and His beauty and His glory that, that our lives are transformed. Again, not perfection, but transformation. This is about more than mere mental, consent, uh, mental assent to a set of doctrines. The book of James, James says even the demons believe. It's never that obedience earns us anything. We're saved by grace alone. Hear that. 
Obedience comes in joyful response to all that God has done and all that He is. Third question this morning is, how did Jesus reassure His disciples? How did He encourage them? This can all sound very daunting. I know, just in conversations with people, many people hear this text, the Great Commission, and they're overwhelmed with guilt or a sense of failure. Years ago when we introduced Operation Andrew, this display, some of you may be not familiar with it, the idea behind this was that we would have a candle in the middle, the Christ candle, that represents Jesus. And all around it are candles that represent people in our lives, people in our spheres of influence who don't know Jesus, whom we will commit to praying for. And that as we see God move in their lives, as we see men or women surrender to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, that we would light those candles just as a, a way to mark that, that new life, that new birth. And I remember early on, a young adult who was part of our church at that time, said something to the effect of, well, this is depressing, but it's going to show how poorly we're doing. It, this can seem like a daunting call to, to make disciples. But Jesus says two things that are ought to, if we hold on to them, if we recognize them, They are a tremendous encouragement to us. Two things. Look with me first at verse 18. Jesus says this. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Heaven and earth is is together. It's it's called a merism. It, It means everywhere. In heaven and earth, everywhere in between. All authority everywhere has been given to me. That means Jesus is saying to his disciples, as he's about to leave them, he says, all authority, all authority, all of it is mine. No no matter where you go, I have authority there. You cannot go anywhere, anywhere, where I don't already have authority. Students, when you go to school, Jesus has authority over your school. Uh, When you go to work, Jesus has authority over your workplace. The city of Edmonton, the province of Alberta, the nation of Canada, Jesus has all authority. It's all His. There is nowhere where we can go where Jesus does not already say, Mine, I have all authority. The kings of the earth may resist. They may say, No, you're not doing this. And Jesus simply says, Watch me. I have all authority. All authority is His. Do you realize that in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus says to Peter, from now on you'll be Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think about that for a moment. The gates of hell. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Right? This is a picture of the church, of God's people, storming the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus has all authority. No matter what dark places we go, no matter where Jesus calls us, no matter where you find yourself, Jesus has authority. All authority. And not only that, but let's look at verse 20. Our text concludes with these words on the lips of Jesus. And surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always. The one who has all authority promises that he will always be with us to the very end of the age. He will, we will never be without him. We're not called to go make disciples by our own strength. We're not called to go make disciples on our own. No, Jesus says, all authority is mine, and I'm with you. Always. Always. So as you go to your place of work, as you go home to your neighborhood, as you go to school, Jesus is with you, and he has all authority. And so it's not for us to produce conversions. We can't. We can't save anyone. In Acts 16, it's put marvelous. Paul, Paul meets Lydia, this woman, a businesswoman. She's a seller of purple cloth. And the text says, as they proclaimed the gospel, they proclaimed Christ, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We're not called to convert anyone. We're called to go baptizing, teaching, knowing that Christ, who has all authority, goes with us always, everywhere. And so it's for us to pay attention to the Spirit, pay attention to Christ. And respond in surrender to go, to baptize, to teach, to faithfully follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Brothers and sisters, to this we have been called. For this reason we have been left here. This is the mission. To go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. That's our mission. That's why we're here, to proclaim His love, to proclaim His grace, to proclaim His glory, to proclaim the hope that we have found in Christ alone, to pour out our lives, counting the cost for the sake of seeing lost Men and women come to faith in Jesus. All around us, whether we are here in Edmonton, whether you're in your neighborhood or, or overseas, all around us are men and women who do not know Christ, who do not have the hope of the gospel, and we are called. There is no greater thing to pour your life out for than to make Jesus known. May God give us strength and courage, may we be attentive to His Spirit. May we lean in and say, yes, Jesus, use me. Use me. Use us. Amen.